Hey, yo, what are you doing, man? Oh, I'm just watching one of the greatest movies of all time. What is that movie? It's called The Goonies, and it's the best. Oh, yeah, the best. Hey, uh, by the way, uh, today we're continuing our series, Got Stop 10, uh, and you know what? We're getting very close. We've been going through a lot of stuff together, man. Yeah, you know, it's it's been a great journey. Uh, we've we've we're down to week two, so this is exactly next week's going to be our final week. But uh, we've shared some good times, some good laughs. Exactly, and and you know what? Today is very important because we we're talking about idols, and uh, uh, the idea is trying to explain to people what idols. Uh, uh, I know exactly what you mean. One of my top idols of all time is Chunk from the Goonies. What? I mean, he's the truffle shuffle king. So hilarious, so funny. Mm. I mean, I could watch that guy do the truffle shuffle probably for like eight hours a day. Uh, no, no, no. I think you're confused. It's not about actors or movies. Oh, it's something different. You're right, because we have the show American Idol, so it's, it's about singing. And you know what I don't get is that we have the show American Idol yet Let's let's be honest. Who's the best of all time? Michael Jackson, right? I uh, mean, come on. I mean, he's like, hee hee. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. Jamal. He, yeah, he was really good. Oh. <laughs> but uh, it's not about that. Yeah, it's kind of like in the old times when um, uh, people used to make this big statues and and uh, paint their bodies and scream and worship. You, you know, I know exactly what you're saying. It's just like football season, which is starting in just a couple weeks. And here's the thing, if, if you're a true Denver Broncos fan, we gotta paint our bodies and we gotta scream louder than anyone else because this year is the year for the Super Bowl championship to come back to Denver. Uh, yes, yes. But how we compare it, what happened in the past to today's day, oh. uh, people, it's getting, I don't know, um, their own gods. You know, it could be money, it could be sport, it could be the, their cell phones, or it could be anything, even their kids sometimes. You know what I mean? I'm embarrassed. <laughs> I, I, I was way off on the whole idol thing. Wow. You're right. You're right. We can take silly things in today's world and put them before God so easily. Exactly. That is the point. Let's welcome up Pastor Jim as he continues our series, God's Top 10 Tips for a Great Life. We thank Pastor Marco and Pastor Dustin for putting those together every week. I'd like to turn in your notes today. We are on week number two. We're going backwards in our God's Top 10 list. We're going from 10 to 1. And so next Sunday will be number one that we'll be dealing with. But today we're in number two, and we're talking about not having idols or allowing idols in our lives. We're going to talk about that. We pick it up in Exodus chapter 20. He actually gives three verses towards this uh, particular commandment, like thou shalt not murder, you know, or thou shalt not kill uh, in the King James, or you shall not murder is, is like one, two, three, four words, you know. But this one on idols is three, three verses. You must not make for yourselves an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. 
I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. So if we go back to the time when, uh, when God wrote this through Moses to the children of Israel, um, actually God wrote it on tablets of stone. Moses chiseled out the tablets uh, out of the side of the mountain and God, with the finger of God, wrote them into these tablets of stone. So if we go back to that particular time in human history, what we see is that idols were very common. Uh, all, all the nations had their own individual gods. In fact, some of the nations had multiple gods that they worshiped. And so idolatry was something that was very prevalent and very prominent in, uh, in all of the nations of the world. You've probably heard of, of the god Ra. You know, he was an Egyptian god, of course, you probably know that. He was worshiped in Egypt as, as the, as the uh, god of all gods of, over all of Egypt. But Egypt had a multiplicity of gods, multiple gods. Um, uh, images of animals and birds and the forces of nature were all celebrated in Egypt as gods and were set up as idols to be worshiped. So the people of Israel now have just been delivered out of that culture, out of that setting, and God is establishing here his, his covenant with them. And he, he understands that they have been given a false narrative about who God is. He understands that they don't understand God. I mean, they know about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They have heard about that, but they don't really know him uh, because they have been in this environment of Egypt with all these false gods. It's important because even Pharaoh himself was considered a god, you know. So they're, they're, they're now coming out of that culture. Interestingly, now they're heading into what he calls the promised land a land of great blessing. But again, it's not a land that's free from idols. In fact, the land is filled with idolatry and, and the worship of idols. Just, just some of them, Baal, you've probably heard of Baal. He was worshiped amongst uh, the nations of, of the promised land as uh, the agricultural god. A god by the name of Ashtoreth was worshiped as the goddess of sex and fertility. Uh, Chemish received worship through child sacrifices as people would take one or some of their children and sacrifice them in the fire. Um, that's un uneven. It's hard to imagine doing that. Molech was revered as the fire god himself. And so the people of Israel had to be taught to distinguish between what was false and what was real. In other words, just because you believe something doesn't, believe what, doesn't mean what you believe is, is right. You can believe something sincerely and be sincerely wrong. You can believe something with all of your heart and it still be wrong. And so God was trying to help the Israelites to come to the truth that what they had been exposed to from where they were coming out of Egypt to where they were going in the promised land with all those gods, that all of those gods were false gods, there was only one God, and that he alone was the God that was worthy of their worship, and that he alone was the God of salvation. He alone would be the one who would protect them and save them. So what they were coming out of, where they were headed, 
was full of the false. It was full of cultic religions. But God is going to send them into this land, out of Egypt, into the promised land, and everything in between to prove to the people that there is only one God. In other words, they're going to be witnesses of the one true God. So he wasn't just blessing the Israelites to bless them and to curse everybody else. He was blessing the Israelites in order to show the rest of the world that all of these other gods were false gods, you know. And there was a time in Israel's history where that was happening. But then they fell away from God, and that's another story. But they wanted him to, or he wanted them rather, to be a demonstration, a witness that he was the one true God. Um, and it kind of reminds me of the scores of people that even we have here who are part of our church fellowship who were at one time a part of a religious system and they were content that that religious system was the truth because that's what they'd been told, that's what they had grown up under, only to find out after further investigation that that religious system was not the truth. A lot of people in our church have come from that kind of a background. And you know you have a choice to make when you learn that something you've always believed to be true, that it isn't true. You could walk away from faith entirely, on the one hand, become an agnostic, turn your heart completely away from any faith claim, become totally secular in your orientation, and, and, and become a, a, an agnostic. Or on the other hand, you can turn your heart to God. Instead of finding a religion, you can find true faith in Jesus Christ. You have a choice to make with your life. And I have known people that have gone, gone both directions with their lives. When confronted with the obvious reality that what they have believed to be true isn't true, I've seen them pull away from all faith systems whatsoever. I've seen them say, I don't want to have anything to do with any faith because what I believe to be true, it's not, and that means there's nothing reliable, and they throw everything away. The baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. And I've seen them pull away totally from any faith system or especially faith in Christ. But I've also seen people do the opposite. People who opened their hearts when they found out the religion they were in wasn't true, wasn't satisfying. They opened their hearts to God and they found in the process not a religion, but they found Jesus Christ at the end of their search. They found the reality that God is alive, not through a religion, but he is alive through a relationship that they could have with him. And, and the difference that I see between the two groups of people is in their quality of life. If, if all truth is rejected because the first truth proved to be false, what I see in people like that is an emptiness, it's a meaninglessness, it's a lack of purpose. Their, their, their lives have no direction, that everything is about this life, this world, and they have no direction towards their life. If a faith challenge leads you to re reject all faith, it doesn't usually leave you a better person. 
it usually leaves you empty. It leaves you cynical. You can turn bitter. And people who do that are being eaten away. It destroys their very inner soul. But all over this church are people who took a different approach to this. Instead of, of rejecting all truth because the one truth was, was not true, it was a false truth, it caused them to seek harder for what was real. And the result has been the forgiveness of sins. The result has been the reality of Jesus Christ. The result has been a life full of new purpose and fulfillment. Israel had to learn only that, that God was, was the true God. They had been told all their life a false narrative about who God was. And the false narrative was all around them. So they had to be taught this truth that there was only one God. Because God's intention through them was to use them as witnesses to be a light in the darkness all over the world that believed the false narrative and all these false gods. They were going to be sent into this world to be a light in the darkness, to be a declaration of the true and the living God. And that's why God gave them the Ten Commandments. He wanted them and us to understand what he is like. He wanted them and us to understand him so that we can represent him properly in the world in which we live. And that brings us then today to the second commandment where God said, I'm going to read it for you again, only this time from the, living, or from the message Bible. It says, no carved gods of any size, shape, or form of anything whatsoever, whether of things that fly or walk or swim. Don't bow down to them, don't serve them, because I am God, your God, and I am a most jealous God, punishing the children for any sins their parents pass on to them, to the third, and yes, even to the fourth generation of those who hate me, but I'm unswervingly loyal to the thousands who love me and keep my commandments. There's so many truths that come out of all of this, but I just want to talk about two of them with you today. And the first one I would say is this, never substitute the false in the place of what's real. Never substitute or be content with false when you can have what's real. God said in this, in this uh, commandment, don't let any carved form or idol substitute for him. Don't let it take the place of him in your heart. Don't let the false substitute for the real. Now, when he's speaking to Israel, he's talking about literal things. So he says, I don't want you to, to carve an image that looks like an animal. I don't want you to carve an image that looks like anything under the sea. I don't want you to carve an image that, that you suppose might look like anything in the heavens, like stars or, or moons or whatever, and worship these things. Don't let anything that's false Take the place of the real, is what he's saying. And, you know, we can think, okay, that's something that they had to deal with back then, but we don't have to deal with that today. But it's interesting to me that the Apostle Paul talks in 2 Timothy, in New Testament, chapter 2, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 5, about another way that people substitute the false for the real. And he told Timothy that some people have a form of godliness that's false, see, but deny its power from such people turn away. So what he's saying here is there is a religious form 
that is false. It's the form of godliness. So it's not the denial of godliness. It's a perverted form of God. In other words, it's an idol. It's an image which they have set in their heart that they believe, but it's not real. And he says, because of it, they have no power. And so you as God's people need to stay away from that. It's interesting to me that Paul here uses this word form when we're talking about images. The, the second commandment is about don't set up an image. Don't set up a, an idol, an image. Well, he's using the word form or image in what he said. And again, we, we kind of have this idea that images and forms and idols and all of that is something that happened way back generations ago or centuries ago or whatever, and it's not really a problem in 21st century humanity. And if it is, it's something that's, that's uh, in, in outer Africa somewhere, or, you know, not, not in enlightened America. It's not like maybe this uh, uh, commandment doesn't apply to us. But Paul says here in, in 2 Timothy 3 that this false worship is going to increase as we get closer to the end of time. So the closer we're getting to the coming of the Lord, the more we're going to see this very thing begin to transpire. Look what he says is in the verses just above verse number 5. In verses 1 through 4, he says, Don't be naive. There are difficult times ahead. Okay, he's talking about the end times. At the end, as the end approaches, people are going to be self-absorbed, money-hungry, self-promoting, stuck-up, profane, contemptuous of parents, crude, coarse, dog-eat-dog, unbending slanderers, impulsively wild, savage, cynical, treacherous, ruthless, bloated windbags. I hope that's not me. Addicted to lust and allergic to God. Now, here's what we do as Christians. We sit and we look at a list like that and say, nope, doesn't apply to me. And yet some of that stuff is in the church. It's amongst God's people. Because after he says these first four verses, which I just read for you, ending with allergic to God, then he says, verse 5, they have a form of godliness but they deny its power, and from such people turn away. So he's saying these things, this, this idol of, of this form of godliness is something that's going to happen increasingly as we get closer to the coming of the Lord at the end of time. And notice he's not saying they're not going to have any religion. He's just simply going to say they're going to have a religion of their own making. You know, you go back to Genesis, and it's very clear that God made man in... Whose image? His image. God made man in his image. What we have been doing ever since is trying to make God in our image. In other words, not to look like us, but to be uh, to our liking, but to be a God that we like. And so we have people that are constantly running from church to church or religion to religion, trying to find a message that they like instead of what is the truth. They want God to be in their image instead of them being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And the thing that's interesting, Paul says this is going to be characteristic of the end time, and 
oh, this is hard. It even gets into the church. It even gets into God's people. Listen to what God said through the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel. He said that his people have erected new gods inwardly with, within their hearts. They've got a new God going on. All the while, they're acting godly on the outside. Ezekiel 14, son of man, these leaders have set up idols in their hearts and they have embraced things that will make them fall into sin. And it's, it reminds me of what Jesus said to the Pharisees. He called them whitewashed sepulchers. You know what a sepulcher is? It's a grave. He says, you've put flowers around the grave. You've made it look all pretty. You've, you've washed it on the outside. You've painted up the grave. But on the inside, it's still full of dead man's bones. In other words, you make it look alive on the outside, but on the inside, it's still dead. That's exactly what Ezekiel was talking about. So if we think about how do we set up idols in our lives and in our hearts today, I think there are at least three ways we do it. Number one, by substituting religion for a relationship with God. There are many, many people that attend churches because they're doing their God thing for that hour on a Sunday morning, but it has no effect on them the rest of the week. And that's substituting religion for a relationship with God. Relationship with God will affect every part of your life. A relationship with God will affect your attitude on Tuesday morning at 10 a.m., not just on Sunday morning at 10 a.m. It'll affect you all the time. It'll guide and direct every decision that you make. That's what a relationship with God will do. A relationship with God will redirect you if you need that. You know, And maybe you have plans in your own heart that you're going to do one thing, but God will say, no, I, I want you to do something else. And my wife had that very thing in her life where she had made preparation and plans to go to a school where she was going to study for a certain, uh, a certain thing. And, and uh, she, bef she had sent the money in and, and had sent in the application. It had been accepted into the schools in Denver. She's from the Wichita area. She was, it was going to be in Denver, but she went to a, a missions outreach in the country of Haiti during the summer before going to this, this school in, in Denver in the fall. And it was while she was there that the Spirit of God spoke to her and said, I don't want you to go to that school. I want you to prepare for your heart for full-time ministry. I want you to go to this particular school because you're going to meet this young man there by the name of Jim Erickson. He's going to be the best thing you ever found. And I want you to do everything he tells you to do. So, something like that, wasn't it? Something close to that. But my point is she did go and we did meet. She doesn't do everything I tell her to do, but she, does, we did, she did go and we did. That, that's a relationship with God. That's what a relationship with God will do for you. It'll guide and direct you. Have you regretted that decision? Not at all. I don't mean just about me, but full-time ministry. Not at all. I, I'm so grateful for how God has led our lives, even at times when I wanted to go a different direction. But that's what a relationship with God will do for you. A religion won't do that for you. Don't ever substitute religion for a relationship with God. The second way we set up idols is by prioritizing things above God. And, and the video kind of said some of those things, like, like toy, the toys we buy, you know, we, uh, they become idols to us, or our careers can become an idol to us, or even our family, our time, all of those things. You know, we prioritize things above God. I'll let the Spirit talk to you about that, not me. And then number three, by becoming a lover of pleasure. 
Paul goes on to tell Timothy that in the last day, people will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Uh, so whatever is pleasing to them, they will say, I know what God's word says, but this is how I feel. This is just who I am. I know what God's word says, but I'm the exception to that. You know, that's putting your own feelings, your own pleasure above what God is saying that becomes an idol to you. But this form of godliness, and this is what's important for you to understand, is powerless to change your life. The form of godliness will not help you break the addictions. The form of godliness will leave you a slave to sin. The form of godliness will not do anything to improve you spiritually. You've got to have the real thing. The form won't break the power of guilt over your life. You can have the form of, a lot of people go to church so that they don't feel guilty. The problem is, as soon as they get back out, they start feeling guilty again. Because religion will never break the guilt off of your life. You know you're not right with God. And what usually ends up happening is people who are in the form of godliness, they go right back to the sin that they originally walked away from. They'll go right back into it. In fact, that's exactly what Ezekiel said there at the end. He says they have embraced things that will make them fall into sin again. You know, so don't let the false steal away your heart from the true image of God. Now, is there any image that we are to worship? Absolutely. The image of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, it says don't worship any image. But in the New Testament, Paul reveals that now the image of Jesus Christ is the one that we are to worship. And this is what God's word says about Jesus and why we are to worship him. Number one, because he is the image, you get that, the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1.15, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Number two, he is the exact representation of God. Hebrews 1.3, the sun radiates God's own glory and expresses the very nature, character, of God. Number three, he is the very form of God. Philippians 2 6, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Number four, he is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You want to know what God looks like? There he is, Jesus. That's God walking around in flesh. That's God wearing shoes. You know, that, that's God wearing clothing. That, that's, that's God putting a hat on. Uh, Philippians 2.6, who being, is that where I'm at? No. Uh, Colossians 2.9, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Deity in bodily form. Deity in, in a body. That's Jesus. Number five, he is the image that we are to become like. Romans 8.29, for God knew his people in advance and chose them to become like his son. So we worship him by becoming like him. Six, he is the image that we shall one day become fully like. In 1 John 3, 2, dear friends, we are, now we are the children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Man, we're gonna be transformed. Number seven, he is the very revelation of God himself. John 14, if you really love me, Jesus says, you will know my Father as well, because anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And then number eight, he is the only way to get to God, Acts 4, 12, there's salvation and no one else. 
And so this is who Jesus is. Don't substitute a religion. Don't substitute the false when you can have a dynamic daily relationship with God through Jesus. Never be satisfied with the false. Never be satisfied with the fake. Always go for the real. Amen? Amen. All right. I got two minutes to finish up the last point. How many of you have faith today that I can do it? Oh. You've been with me so long. And you still have faith. Number two, don't substitute false love for real love. I'll hit this real quick. Now keep in mind that God is revealing what he's like to a group of people who don't really know him yet. Especially not like you and I do. So he's, he's revealing to them through these Ten Commandments. This is what I'm like. This is what I love. This is how you're supposed to treat one another and so forth. Um, and the most important thing that they needed to know about this God that they were being delivered by, this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the most important thing at this stage of their relationship with him was this, that he was a jealous God. That's not the only thing they're going to learn about God, but it's the most important thing they first up learn about God. That's why it's just in the second commandment. I am a jealous God. Exodus 20, verse 5. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. And Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25, tells us why he feels that way. He says, to whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? Ask the Holy One. Well, if it is true that no other God can compare to the God of the Bible, if it is true that he has no equal, then it just follows, brothers and sisters, that he should be jealous if people substitute a love for that which is false and false gods and idols and religious systems in the place of him, in the place of what is real. You know, we think of jealousy as a negative thing. How can God be jealous? That's such a terrible thing. And usually in human beings that is true, but not with God. God is not jealous in a negative sense because he is perfect. His emotions are perfect. They're always under perfect control, and so he expresses jealousy in a beautifully holy way. God is jealous, not in the sense that he's jealous about other gods, that you might love other gods, because he knows that they aren't really gods at all anyway. They don't even really exist. He's not jealous about other gods. The word jealous in verse 5 is an expression of his love for you. I am jealous for you because I want the very best for you. That's what he's saying here in this fifth verse. And so he is jealous for your freedom. He paid the price for your freedom through the shed blood of his son on the cross. And that is why he's jealous for you. And he's jealous for your healing. He wants you healed. He paid the price for your healing through the stripes that were laid on his son's back. That is why he is jealous for you. And he's jealous for your blessings. He was wounded for your transgressions. He was bruised for your iniquities. The punishment that has brought you peace was laid upon him and that's why we are healed by his stripes and that's why he is jealous for you he was jealous for your abundant life because the enemy comes only to steal and kill and to destroy but he has come through Jesus that you might have life and might have it more abundantly that's why he's jealous and he's jealous for your future he has gone to prepare a place for you and me 
And if he has gone away, he's going to come again to take us to be with him. He's preparing a place, and that's why he's jealous for you. He is jealously in love with you. He wants the very best for you and for your family. And he warns us not to let anything get in the way because ultimately it's going to affect not only you, but it's going to affect your family too. And he doesn't want that to happen. And if I had time, I would tell you about the testimony of a woman that came up to me after the first service today. And she, brokenhearted, said, this is what's happening in our family because my husband put other things in front of his relationship with God. And this is how it's affecting our children. And this is what's taking place generation to generation. He warns, he says, you do this, you walk away from me and it's gonna affect your kids and your grandkids down to the third and the fourth generations. God's not gonna send that stuff on them, you are. In rebellion, you are sending that to them. It passes from one generation to another and you know it does. You see the stuff and in, 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 not in your family, but in other families. You see it happening. You see the alcoholic dad who has an alcoholic son. You, you see the, the father who's involved in pornography who, whose son is now getting involved in that, in immoral lifestyle. You see the mother who's bitter and talks and gossips, and now her daughter or son are becoming that way. As, I mean, it passes on. They see it in mom and dad, they'll do it. God doesn't want that for you or your family. But when the miracle of God's grace reaches your soul and Jesus sets you free, a new life begins in you. Blessings begin to follow. The favor of God comes upon your family. Things change completely. You see, only one thing can break the cycle of death. It's the grace of God. This is not a negative message, folks. This is a positive message. You say, this might be what my dad and my mom were like. This might be my past history. That does not mean that's going to have control over you or your kids or your family or your gener the generations that follow you. Because right now, we're going to break it in the power of Jesus. Amen? Right now, we're going to see this thing broken. And verse number 6 in Exodus 20 says, I will lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and obey my commandments. That's how great God's love is. You start serving God with a full heart, folks, you can start claiming your kids for Jesus. They may be in rebellion right now, but they got no idea what the power of your prayers are going to do to change the course of their lives. Amen? Amen. You claiming that for your family? Hallelujah. Let's stand together. Here at Live Church, we pray that you have a blessed week. Please connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or you can always go to lifechurchutah.com.